We, uh, we've been walking through the first book of the Psalms, and we started in Psalms 1 and 2 with some ideals, some uh, portraits of what is ultimate reality. Uh, we looked in Psalm 1 at the contrast between the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And we saw how the blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and calls us to the way of true prosperity on the way of the righteous. And then in Psalm 2, we saw how the nations are raging against the Lord's anointed king. Uh, but he is the one who is going to judge the nations. And so he invites anyone to come and find refuge in him. But after looking at these two ideal portraits in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, uh, then the Psalter switches. It, it, it takes a turn uh, and gets more into the, the nitty-gritty of real life, and particularly in terms of suffering. So we saw in Psalm 3, David, who in Psalm 2, you know, we have this in picture of the anointed king who's triumphant, victorious, and, and exalted and sovereign. And then all of a sudden in Psalm 3, the anointed king has foes rising against him. Uh, he has a need for salvation, and he runs to the Lord for that salvation and for hope. And then in Psalm 4 last week, we looked at this time where there was a lack of physical provisions. There was, there was hardship. There was criticism uh, directed toward David, the anointed king. But we saw how he pointed not only his own heart, but the people of God to find peace and safety in the Lord. And while this whole real life um, walking through suffering that just continues in Psalm 5. And uh, so if you would, if you're able, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read together Psalm 5. To the choir master, to the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For though there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor 
as with a shield. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. What attribute of God do you find most comforting? When you go to God looking for comfort, what are you looking to find comfort in? Maybe his love, his grace, his goodness, his sovereignty even. But what about his righteousness, his justice? how he punishes the evil and rewards the good, how he treats all people fairly. I would guess that righteousness or justice may not be the first thing that comes to mind for many of us when we're thinking about what would be the most comforting attribute of God. But in Psalm 5, David finds comfort in God's righteousness. He finds confidence in God's justice. He asks God to act righteously. And he leads God's people to find comfort in God's righteousness. My hope for us this morning is that we would learn from David's example Because the righteousness of God is a refuge for those in Christ. The righteousness of God is a refuge for those in Christ. We're going to look at this psalm in two sections. First, in verses 1 through 7, we'll see David's confidence in God's righteous character. And then in verses 8 through 12, we'll see David's petitions for God to act righteously. First, David's confidence in God's righteous character in verses 1 through 7. In these verses, I see three aspects of David's confidence. David begins in verses 1 through 3 with confidence in having God's ear. The first aspect of David's confidence in God's righteous character is his confidence in having God's ear. In the first two verses, David asks God to hear him. Look at those. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. David asks God to consider his groaning. That word groaning is actually the same word uh, translated meditates in Psalm 1. The idea is that David has this burden continually on his heart and on his lips. And he's asking the Lord to listen to him about this burden. As he prays, notice that David refers to Yahweh as my king and my God. The king, David, refers to God as his king. The king, after God's own heart, knows that he is a man under God's kingship, and he is dependent upon his God. Well, then in verse 3, he shifts from a request to a confident statement. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. 
in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Even as he asks God to hear him, he is sure that God does hear him. He offers his prayer and then he watches, expecting God to answer him. Well, what is the reason for this confidence in having God's ear? Well, he has confidence in having God's ear because, second, he has confidence in God's intolerance of evil. Confidence in God's intolerance of evil. In verses 4 through 6, David describes God's righteous character. And he does so by describing how he does not tolerate evil. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God will have nothing to do with sin. Sin cannot come into his holy presence. Evil may not dwell with him. The boastful cannot stand before his eyes. David says, in fact, that God hates all evildoers. Now, this is not a popular idea. But as we look at this text, we have to understand that this is the clear teaching of Scripture that God hates sinners. This raises a question. Is there room in your understanding of who God is for the Bible to say God hates all evildoers? Ultimately, David makes this statement that God hates evildoers to point to God's righteous character. Because God is righteous, because he is holy, he must hate evil. He must hate sinners. He must abhor those who rebel against him. This is the righteous character of God. And this is the righteous character of God that David has confidence in. And he is confident that God will hear him, verse 3, because, verse 4 and following, he is the God who hates evil. David, basically, the line of thought is he's saying, I know you hear me because I'm not one of these people whom you hate. And David doesn't stop there. After declaring his confidence that God will hear him, because of his confidence in God's righteous character, David goes on finally in verse 7 to express his confidence to enter God's presence. Confidence to enter God's presence. In verse 7, in contrast to the evildoers God hates and who cannot dwell with him, David says in verse 7, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple 
in the fear of you. Evil may not dwell with Yahweh, but David will enter the Lord's house. The boastful will not stand before God's eyes, but David will bow down toward his holy temple. Why? Is it because David is really good at fearing the Lord? No. Is it because David is righteous enough? No. Is it because David has never done something that the Lord hates? No. David can enter the house of the Lord because of God's steadfast love. Do you see that at the beginning of verse 7? But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. That term, steadfast love, is a term that we're going to see all over the Psalms, and it refers to God's covenant love. It refers to God's mercy. God had not only made a covenant with the nation of Israel, God had also made a covenant with King David himself and his offspring. Uh, God made a statement about David's offspring in 2 Samuel 7, 15. He said, my steadfast love will not depart from him. The reason David could enter God's presence was not because he was so holy, but because God was so merciful. The difference between David and his enemies was not that they were sinners and he was not. It was that they were sinners in rebellion against God, but David was a sinner who had been justified by faith. And so, if the statement before that we saw, this idea that God hates sinners, if that doesn't sit well with you, here's where we begin to get an understanding of how to make sense of that. Uh, Because one reason that the statement, God hates sinners, is hard to swallow is because we also know that the Bible says God so loved the world. So how do we put those two statements together? Well, we need to start by understanding the difference between God's assessment on the one hand and his action on the other hand. Okay, so we need to distinguish between his assessment and his action. When David says that God hates evildoers, he is speaking of God's assessment of evildoers. God evaluates sinners as abhorrent. And that assessment is, at times, expressed in action. David says in verse 6 that God destroys those who speak lies. Well, similarly, God's assessment of the righteous is that they're lovely. And that assessment is expressed in action. God rewards and blesses the righteous. But when the Bible talks about how God loves sinners, loves the world, it's not speaking of God's assessment of sinners. God does not look on wicked people and feel warm and fuzzy inside. When the Bible speaks about God's love for sinners, it is talking about God's action. What God has done for the world. 
The amazing thing about God is that he has demonstrated love toward sinners. <coughs> he has demonstrated love to evildoers. He looked on people. He looked on the wicked whom he abhorred. And he chose to take action in such a way that sinners could experience his love. So the truth that God hates evildoers and the truth that God loved the world are not at all at odds with each other. But if God is righteous, if he must punish the unrighteous and reward the righteous... How can he demonstrate love to evildoers and still remain righteous? Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Paul deals with exactly this issue in Romans chapter 3. Look at Romans 3, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All of us are evildoers. We all deserve to be hated by a righteous God. We deserve to be destroyed by God as the righteous punishment for our rebellion. But God did the unthinkable. He sacrificed the son of David, Jesus Christ. So now God can justly perform an amazing exchange. Jesus is righteous and deserves blessing. We are sinners, and we deserve punishment. But God took our sins and credited them to Jesus and punished him in our place. And now, if we trust in Jesus, God takes Jesus' righteousness and credits it to us. That's what the Bible calls justification. God can look on evildoers who trust in Christ and assess them as righteous. And because of this, those who once deserved only the hatred of God are loved by God. And what Paul says is that God knew he was going to do this from eternity past. So when he promised to show steadfast love, mercy on David, he was looking ahead to the cross. In David's day, God was passing over 
David's sins. But he didn't stop being righteous because he knew David's sins would get the punishment they deserved and they would be punished in David's offspring, Jesus. In the meantime, because David trusted in the Lord's steadfast love, he could enter the house of the Lord. He could enter the holy presence of God and bow down toward his temple. David could enter the presence of God. David could be heard by God because he had been justified through faith in the Lord's steadfast love. He could approach the righteous God because of the righteousness of his offspring, Jesus. And likewise, you and I can approach the righteous God today if we approach him through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If you have not trusted in Jesus, the Bible says that you are separated from God, unable to be in his presence, and you can do nothing on your own to fix that relationship. But if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in the blood of Jesus, if the blood of Jesus, his son, has cleansed you from sin, in Christ, you and I can have the same confidence that David had. In Christ, you and I can approach God with the confidence that we have God's ear. We can be confident that he will listen when we cry to him. In Christ, you and I can approach God with confidence even in God's righteous character, his, even in his intolerance of evil, because we're confident that God would not hear us on our own merits. Instead, we're confident that God will hear us because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In Christ, you and I can approach God with the confidence that comes only from the steadfast love, the mercy of God. We can be confident that he who promised to love us, is faithful to keep his promises in Christ. We can have confidence in God's righteous character. Well, 
After expressing his confidence in God's righteous character, David then goes on in the rest of Psalm 5 to make petitions for God to act righteously in verses 8 through 12. So in the first part of the psalm, let's turn our attention back to Psalm chapter, or excuse me, from um, Psalm 5. In verses 1 through 7, David declares that he can enter into God's presence and he can have his requests heard because of God's righteous character. So what would naturally follow that? Prayer. Requests. You will hear me, so I've got some requests for you. Hear this. And David makes three requests, three petitions. First, he asks for righteous guidance for the king himself. Righteous guidance for the king himself. David asks in verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So David asks that God would guide him. David wants to walk in righteousness. He'll pray something similar in Psalm 23, verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Specifically, David asks God to lead him because of his enemies. This seems to be a prayer for vindication. He's going to go on to pray, essentially, that his enemies who choose the way of the wicked, that they would experience the failure that comes from that path, that they would realize uh, and experience the consequences of the way of the wicked. But in contrast to that, David says, make your way straight before me. In other words, as his enemies watch him on the way of the righteous, and as they walk on the way of the wicked, he's praying that God would show them that he is on the path that God blesses. He is on the path that ends in true prosperity. Well, David prayed this because Israel needed a king led by the Lord. And in the son of David, we have the perfectly righteous king. And our righteous king wants to lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We talked about justification before. Well, this is sanctification. We were sinners, but through faith in Christ, we are declared righteous positionally. That's justification. And now Jesus, our righteous king, is leading those who have been declared righteous in living righteously. I wonder as you look at that prayer, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. In what area of your life do you need to pray that prayer? Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Well, thankfully, God has not left us wondering what the path of righteousness is. He has mapped out our path in his word. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verses 105 and 106, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. God has, in fact, given us everything in Scripture that we need to be complete men and women of God and equipped for every good work. But like David experienced, it is often difficult to stay on the path of righteousness when the world is watching. The path of obedience to God's word doesn't always look prosperous. For a time, people may question you, even criticize you for following the path of righteousness. But if you are following Jesus on the path of righteousness, you can be confident that one day it will be clear that you were on the right path. So are you content to walk the path of righteousness even if for a time it seems unpopular? Are you content to be kind and humble even when it's culturally acceptable to be aggressive and brash? Are you content to be honest even on occasions when it's expected for you to bend the truth? May our prayer be that our righteous king would lead us on paths of righteousness. And as the world watches, may it not only be revealed to them that we were on the right path, but may God use it to draw them to the path of righteousness where the righteous king is found. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, may they see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Well, after asking for righteous guidance for himself, second, David asks for just punishment for the king's enemies in verses 9 and 10. Would you turn uh, your attention to verse 9? For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. David's enemies sin with their mouths through lies and flattery. But even though they're sinning with their mouths, their sin reaches far deeper than their mouths. The problem is their heart. They have destruction in their inmost self. David describes their throat as an open grave, as if he looks through the opening and sees a dead heart buried inside. We read earlier from Romans 3, and earlier in that chapter, Paul actually quotes this verse as he describes the total depravity of all people, both Jews and Gentiles. The truth is that this is a verse that doesn't just describe David's enemies, it describes all of us apart from Christ. And in light of the wickedness of his enemies, David makes this request in verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David is most concerned not with the fact that his enemies are against him, he is most concerned that they have sinned against God. And so David requests that his enemies would get what they deserve. 
he asks God to let them reap the consequences that come from the sin they have sown. So here's a question. Should we pray like this? I mean, we just said in verse 8 that that prayer of David is one that we should pray. Lead me in your righteousness. So when we're facing an enemy, someone rebelling against God, someone actively trying to ruin our life, should we pray, make them bear their guilt, O God? The answer is no. Why? Well, because this is a prayer that God's anointed king gets to pray because of the unique role that God has given him. A role that is ultimately fulfilled in the son of David, Jesus Christ, who will bring justice to all the enemies of God. Who will bring justice to all the enemies of God's people. (coughs) In Acts 17, verse 31, Paul said, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has pointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In Revelation 19, 11, John saw what this will look like. He says, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So Jesus is the one who is responsible to make sure that justice is carried out on the wickedness of of men. This is a prayer for Jesus ultimately to pray. Instead, consider what Jesus calls his people to do. In Matthew 5, 43 and 44, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, what kinds of prayers should we pray for those who persecute us? Well, prayers like the one Jesus prayed on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Prayers like Stephen prayed when he was being stoned to death in Acts 7, 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Seeing the anointed king's prayer in Psalm 5 should drive us not to pray this prayer for ourselves. It should drive us to trust in Jesus, the anointed king. It should drive us to trust in Jesus to execute perfect justice. We can have confidence in his righteous judgment. When people sin against us, we can be sure of one of two truths. Either that person's sin will be dealt with when Jesus returns to judge the earth, or that person's sin has already been dealt with at the cross when Jesus bore the wrath of God. Either way, we can trust Jesus to right every wrong. We can trust that justice will prevail. And because we have that confidence in Jesus' justice against sin, it frees us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Well, after asking for righteous guidance for himself, 
and then asking for just punishment on his enemies. Finally, David asks in verses 11 and 12 for joyful refuge for the king's people. Joyful refuge for the king's people. So in contrast to his request that his enemies be punished, David says in verse 11, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. So in verse 11, David's request is twofold. First, he asks that the people of God would experience joy. He wants those who have been justified by faith to rejoice in the blessing that they have received. He wants those who have received God's steadfast love to sing joyfully at the mercy that God has shown them. And second, he asks for God to protect them. He asks that they would know the safety that's found in Yahweh. He asks this so that they would exult, that they would boast, rejoice in their God. And then David concludes the psalm in verse 12 by giving the reason why those who take refuge in Yahweh can rejoice. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Again, thinking about God's assessment and his action, David says that the one who God assesses as righteous is one who is blessed in action. But the righteous here is singular. David is talking about the righteous one, the anointed king. The Lord blesses his righteous one. The Lord protects his anointed king with his favor like a shield. And so the people of God experience joy and protection by finding refuge in the favor that God has shown to his king. By finding refuge in the favor and blessing that he has shown to his anointed. As we saw in Psalm 2.12, David wrote, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God's people are safe when they find refuge in God's son. If you try to find security in your good works, you will never be safe. You will never be able to find security by trying to earn God's favor through your own performance. God's anointed king, Jesus, is the only one who has God's total and complete favor. We can find security not by trying to earn God's favor for ourselves, but by finding refuge in the righteous one. So, when you fall into sin and you fear that you have lost God's favor, remember, God's favor was never dependent on your actions. The only way you and I can ever experience God's favor is through the favor he has shown to his son. And if we have trusted in Jesus, then God looks on us who should receive only hatred and abhorrence. But in Christ, he looks on us with the delight and favor 
that he has in his son. If we are in Christ, our eternity is as secure as Jesus' eternity is secure. So when your security is shaken, don't turn inward to fix it. Lift your eyes to the king. Place your faith in him. Place your confidence in the God who justifies. Find refuge in the righteous one. Paul says in Romans 8, 33 to 39, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray that Psalm 5 has given you a taste of just how comforting the righteousness of God really is. It is because of God's righteousness that we can be justified. It is because of God's righteousness that we can enter God's presence. It's because of God's righteousness that we can be led on the path of righteousness. It's because of God's righteousness that we can have peace about our enemies. It's because of God's righteousness that we can have eternal security. On the one hand, God's righteousness should cause sinners to fear, but God's righteousness is sinners' only hope. So may we all find refuge in the righteous one. Let's pray together. Father, you are the righteous God. And though we deserve nothing but your hatred, Lord, you have demonstrated love to evildoers by sending your son. Lord, I pray that each of us here would be drawn to him, drawn to place faith in him, knowing that we can never be righteous on our own. We can never find your favor on our own. If we are ever to experience your protection and refuge, it must be only through your son, the righteous one. Lord, may we be found in him. Love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.